concern. If you have a technology just for rich people, it's never a good uh, technology. So my dream is to decrease this cost from two millions of dollars to one thousand of dollars. Hey there, I'm Luca Fusarbassini, I'm a PhD student in computational biology at TPFL in Switzerland, and you're listening to a Biotech Futurist. The Biotech Futurist aims to foster deep understanding and discussion about exciting hot topics in biotech, but I want to say from the beginning that it is by no means rigorous in teaching the subject. And for the sake of outreach, sometimes we need generalizations that, of course, simplify the reality of the science behind what we're discussing. But I can say that my guests and I do our best to be clear and to go in depth. You can imagine to be out with me and my expert guest for a friendly conversation to get a general understanding and more curiosity, having fun as much as I've had recording this podcast. This podcast has no sponsors and any reference is not meant to support any commercial activity. This podcast is a solo effort, so if you wish to support me, I'd be grateful if you followed the Biotech Futurist on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform and share it with your friends. With that said, I am excited to move on to today's conversation at the Biotech Futurist. Welcome back to the Biotech Futurist. Today I'm delighted to host Vittoria Raffa, who was my professor of nanomedicine and molecular biology at the University of Pisa. Vittoria has roots in chemical engineering. She's an associate professor in Pisa and she's been a leader in nanomedicine since a very young age. Vittoria, it's always great to discuss science in detail with you. Thanks for being here. I'd be happy if you could tell us briefly about your journey as a scientist and as a person, from your curiosities and dreams to what you're doing these days. Thank you, Luca. My pleasure to stay here with you and the other attenders. Uh, uh, well, um, so talking about my, my, my science, well, I have different interests in uh, science and in, in research. It's my interest uh, is uh, to explore a multidisciplinary field because, uh, as you know, Luca, I have a degree in um, engineering, but I am professor of molecular biology. So let's say I have the, the interest in exploring, discovering new technology, new radically new technology, and to apply uh, this technology uh, in the field of biology to provide a new new solution, a new opportunity uh, for uh, with with a light to new uh, therapeutic application. Actually, my research interest is in the neuroscience field and also in the gene editing field. Okay, so um, since the beginning, I was uh, involved in uh, many uh, European projects, uh, trying to establish uh, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary networking with uh, uh, experts in physical science, material science, uh, photonics, uh, biology, uh, neuroscientist, uh, expert of gene therapy, in order to um, create, to uh, think to radically new technologies. Surely, gene therapy is uh, one major field of interest. Today, the, the, the focus is uh, in CRISCAS-9 technology for, uh, um, yes, for application in the gene therapy. Uh, my journey in this field started a long time ago when I was um, a PhD student uh, working with uh, nanotechnology and I was attracted by um, a special type of uh, nanoparticles, we are carbon nanotubes. And at that time I was, let's say, um, interested in uh, a question that from let's say, a physical point of view, an engineering perspective, my question was, what happens if these um, carbon nanotubes working as a small nanoantennas uh, are in contact with, uh, with the neural cells or neuronal cells? Can I use these small nanoantennas to um, generate by um, electromagnetic waves to, uh, let's say, generate electric field and can I use this electric field to, um, for example, modulate the electrical activity of neuronal cells or to perform electroporation in order to transfect neuronal cells with plasmid? And so this uh, was um, my idea to exp 
explore this this uh, this idea in order to perform gene therapy on you know cells which are hard to transfect cells and at that time was really successful so starting from this original idea a few years ago i uh, continue let's say to be interested in this topic um of course the idea uh, was a little bit changing because um today when you talk about gene therapy of course you talk about crispr9 technology so i'm still working this field but trying to um, exploit the new tool that are available in the field and especially the crispr9 machinery but basically the question uh, remain the same can i use novel uh, materials and to exploit the properties the physical properties of these materials to create smart technological tool for uh, gene editing and this as a real application the real world for um, gene therapy so this is in brief my my research interest luca awesome i guess that this first answer already uh, put us in the middle of your research so i'd be happy if you could give us a brief panoramic tour in the projects that your lab is currently focusing on and why do they matter what is their position in the bigger picture and what are your dreams for the next few years on your own research my dreams and um, is to give a chance for therapeutic success to the concept of a programmable nanomedicine the concept of programmable nanomedicine is a really new concept so the idea is to um, use the tool the new tool that we have in the field of nanotechnology and synthetic biology to generate nano nanotools that can be triggered by external stimuli why this is important in medicine and the in the biomedical field because my dreams is to think to a new generation of uh, um, medical products uh, that can be safer for the patients So the general idea of programmable nanomedicine is to have a new generation of therapeutics whose activity can be switched on and off according to the uh, therapeutic desire. For example, just to give you one practical example, we are working on a light switchable and a formulation for uh, uh, genome editing based on the CRISPR-Cas9 system. So the idea is to give this is a medication uh, uh, in a, a not active form okay and then you can activate by light this uh, this uh, nano formulation uh, just in the tissue that you need to um, treat or in the moment that you need to apply the therapeutics and so this uh, um, let's say this concept of programmable nanomedicine increase the safety profile of uh, medic- uh, medical products um, because if you administer the formulation this uh, drugs in, in a form that is not active you don't have any side effect and so you can just activate the therapeutic activity you can switch on the therapeutic activity when you want if you want and where you want and this of course increase Uh, the um, safety but also the efficacy profile for doing this we need to integrate current knowledge in different field synthetic biology nanotechnology gene therapy material science whatever you want so we should play at the boundary of different disciplines that's awesome so to sum up uh, one of the crucial questions that we'll be discussing today with Victoria is the issue of delivering nanomedicines in the right place so we don't elicit off targets and undesired effects at other organs in our body but this is hard to do especially if you only focus on uh, molecular aspects of these tools as we have to really recognize subtle cell- cellular differences and only target the disease let's say cells Uh, so one possible solution that Victoria is exploring is to, you know, administer these uh, nanomedical therapeutics whole body, but then activate them only when and where they are needed by means of some external uh, um, means, such as light. And uh, uh, this is an idea that uh, Victoria was describing in the iGene project, and I'd be happy if you could discuss uh, with us a little more in detail what are the nanotransducers uh, that you're using in this project. And uh, why they constitute a safer tool for nanomedicine compared to a state of the art, especially um, as what you've called the when, where, if 
functions integration. Yes, thank you, Luca, for this question. So, um, as as I, as I told you before, the, the idea is to put together a different concept that comes from synthetic biology and nanotechnology to create to generate this stimuli responsive nano platform. I think that we can call some concept that comes from logic gate, okay, to to understand how we can benefit from from this uh, this integration. So think a little bit to the Boolean algebra. So the logic gate, the truth table. No, in this context, if you think to the CRISPR-Cas9 system, the CRISPR-Cas9 system could be understood as one input logic gate. And the output is uh, the gene editing. And the gene editing came true if the input came true. In this specific case, the input is the recognition of the target by the guide RNA. Okay, so if you think in this, uh, a lot of this consideration, the CRISPR-Cas9 could be considered a one input logic gate. The output gene editing comes true if the input, which is the guide recognition, the target came true. Uh, well, our general idea is to implement a multi-input lo- and logic gate, which is the advantage. The advantage of multi-input and logic gate is that for the output to come true, more than one input, two, three, four different inputs should simultaneously come true. And so by doing this, uh, you can increase the uh, safety uh, of your treatment because if you increase the input required for the output to come true, this means that you strongly reduce the uh, off-target events. Okay, and so which are these these inputs? So we are playing a lot with this. For example, light could be one additional input, or additional input could be the recognition of different sites. For example, in order to have uh, the gene editing event, the uh, simultaneous recognition of two different sites should happen. So yes, input number one recognition of the first site onto the target. Second event, second input recognition, the second outside. Third event, light on. So in this case, you have a three input at logic gate. And so all these three conditions needs to come through to have the output. So this means that by using this concept of synthetic biology, you can realize a triggerable, a switchable system. And so you can have your therapeutic activity, which is uh, the gene editing activity, all, when all these conditions uh, are going to happen, okay? Uh, and so this is something that simultaneously can increase the safety of the treatment, but also the efficacy, and also reduce the side effect, because you are targeting just the tissue, okay? The, in this specific case, the tissue irradiated by light. Any other tissue is, which is not irradiated by light is not interested by this, uh, this activity. And so, which is the big advantage? The big advantage is that you really expand the therapeutic application of uh, gene editing, gene gene therapy based on the CRISPR-Cas9 system. So this is our, let's say, long-term dream. That's awesome. So to summarize, the idea is here that uh, by combining different inputs, uh, you can reduce uh, unwanted uh, activation of the system because you know it's highly unlikely that all the three or more of them will come true simultaneously if you don't uh, have the conditions that you really want to target where the single input is much more likely to turn true when you don't want it to turn true right so i, I think this really puts us in the middle of a conversation on today's uh, episode that is dna editing techniques safe and effective nanomedical delivery and in general, scientific discovery and innovation where fields intersect. I guess we can start from gene editing techniques, uh, specifically focusing on context-dependent advantages and limitations of each techniques, because, you know, each technique uh, is not in itself perfect or imperfect. Each technique becomes useful when you set the right context. So first, I'd be happy, Vittoria, if you could briefly describe for us uh, how CRISPR-Cas9 drive techniques have completely revolutionized how we do science in basically almost all biological fields, I suppose, based on your personal experience. I mean, 
you were already an established scientist when the CRISPR revolution happened. So how did the field react when the first papers came out? How was your reaction, the reaction of your colleagues? Was there skepticism or enthusiasm when you first tested them? Were you feeling that it worked or were you skeptical about it? I mean, I'd be very curious on the human also side of the equation of this substantial revolution in the biofields. Well, uh, my reaction, I guess, was similar to the reaction of all uh, molecular biologists in, in the world. We really realized that uh, this was the beginning of a new chapter of the um, biotech and molecular biology history. Thinking to my, uh, my uh, reaction, uh, well, at the time, um, I should say that the concept of tools for uh, editing uh, genomes was not totally new. Let's say at that time there was other tools, think finger nucleases or talent to perform the genome editing of living organisms. But when with the discovery of the, the CRISPR-Cas9 system, that was really clear for me that it was a breakthrough. Why? Because um, I really understand that this technology has a huge uh, therapeutic uh, potential. That was, and this was not the same for the previous one. So the previous one technology was really uh, outstanding for a biotech, but with uh, the discovery of the CRISPR-Cas9 that was uh, clear to the scientific community that we can expand the application from the biotech to the therapy, so gene therapy field. Um, so that was my first reaction. We really now we have the tool to think, uh, uh, to outmodify uh, human genomes for therapeutic application. This was the first reaction. The, the second reaction was, okay, uh, well, uh, this, this tool is uh, so much powerful that we as a scientist should, uh, uh, let's say, take into account some ethical concerns. So we should be responsible in the use of these uh, these uh, tools uh, because really we have a big power and a lot of uh, um, new knowledge in a very short time frame that we really need to understand which are the potential but also the limitation of this technology. Not to stop the discovery, I mean, not to stop the science advance, but just to understand which are the limitations and how to overpass this limitation, thinking to the therapeutic application. That's my first and my second reaction. So I guess the expectations were set pretty high since the very beginning of it, right? Absolutely. That was clear since the beginning. That's interesting, yeah. So what about some broad definitions for gene editing technologies? I guess most uh, listeners of this podcast will be familiar with CRISPR-Cas as it's one of the very main protagonists of these episodes. Uh, But maybe we could spend a couple of words uh, uh, to discuss a little bit about uh, base editors, prime editors, based editors, CRISPR-I and CRISPR-A for transcription repression and activations, the last two of them. So these are all techniques based on CRISPR-Cas, but they have different features that make them uh, um, pretty useful in different situations. Could you describe them for us a little bit, Vittoria, and uh, also c- compare them? So what's the advantage of the one? What's the limitation of the other one? Well... Um, that's not totally clear to the scientific community. We are still exploring the limitation of this, uh, this, uh, this uh, technology. Just to have a very, very uh, short summary on them, and we can, uh, let's say, discuss more on specific, uh, specific subject if you want to look up. But just, just to give you a summary. Well, the traditionally, the, the traditionally CRISPR-Cas9 system can use different Cas variants. The most popular is the Cas9 variant that is a, a nuclease that is able to um, perform a double strand break. And this double strand break can be used to knock out or knock in the gene expression depending on PF or if you don't have a donor uh, template. Well, a limitation of this technique is that at low frequency, 
it's also possible that these enzymes uh, recognize of target um, sequence that are similar to the target, but let's say uh, they differ from one to three bases in the in the target sequence. Uh, this off-target could happen at, 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 low, at low frequency, but it's still possible that the enzyme recognizes this off-target sequence. How you can solve this? Uh, of course, it's possible to select variants that are high-fidelity variants of Cas9 system. Well, there is another system which is based on a mutation of the Cas9 protein, which is the DCAS9, catalytically dead Cas9, which used to perform interference. What this means? Uh, just to give you a simple example, when you want to express one gene, what should happen is that there is some chromatin remodeling and onto the, to the promoter, you need the, the, the assembly of the transcriptional machinery, the pre-initiation complex, for example. So if you have one uh, um, enzyme, okay, this catalytically dead Cas9, which is able to bind to the promoter, but not to cleave, just to bind on that, uh, for a sterical hindrance, you are blocking the assembly of the trans uh, transcriptional machinery. So you are knocking down the expression of the gene, okay? But you can use the same system to activate the expression. For example, you can create a recombinant protein, okay? So, for example, you can express Cas9 as a recombinant, the catalytically dead Cas9 as a recombinant protein, and you can fuse to the C-terminal or N-terminal of this uh, uh, catalytically dead Cas9 one uh, co-activator of the transcription one coenzyme which is a positive, for example, modulator of transcription, or could be a, a chromatin remodel or a modifier of the chromatin. So in this specific case, you can target this system close to the promoter. Then you can bring onto the promoter this positive modulator of the transcription or chromatin remodel, remodeling. And so you can activate transcription. Okay. By using this concept to produce the Cas9 as a, a recombinant protein, you can, uh, let's say, fuse to the N-terminal, C-terminal, the Cas9 protein, also other, other, other uh, domains or other protein, for example, the base editors. Okay. So by doing this, what happens that in specific uh, logic into the human genome or genome of living organism, you can target base editor. And this base editor are able to perform a single base mutation. What this means? This means that you have the uh, red pencil to uh, rewrite the genome by using a single base base change and this is the concept of a base editor or for example with the prime um, prime editing you can let's say use a reverse transcriptase so to fuse to the cas9 the reverse transcriptase and you can also modify the guide rna to include in the guide rna a guide template the reverse transcriptase can use to copy a small strand, okay, so insert small sequence into the target point. This editor is a really new, that's really, really interesting. The concept is like the prime editor, but what you are doing is to insert in the target locus, integrate the site. And so you can couple this with the serine integrase to perform, let's say, in a smart way, kin, genokin by combining this uh, serine integrase with the uh, prime uh, editing. I guess it's uh, too much, it's a lot of concept in a in few minutes. Um, but, but the point is that you, you really have a, a molecular schistor, and by this molecular schistor you can cut, copy, paste, modify, edit uh, any sequence, whatever you want, where you want. That's the so you understand that the number of uh, possibility that we have is uncountless. So basically this tool has enabled scientists to bring almost everything to DNA, right? So 
ranging from enzymes that aid its specific basis, Victoria was mentioning this red pen to change the letters of DNA one at a time, and uh, um, other enzymes that can uh, modify DNA specifically to activate transcription or inhibit transcription rather than modifying the letters themselves. So this opens a uh, um, full um, range of opportunities for different disease settings. I'd be happy if now, Victoria, you could explain to us uh, a few examples uh, of disease settings in which uh, um, CRISPR is relevant, uh, specifically now, I mean, in the long run, maybe it will be relevant in almost all disease settings as acting on gene expression or genes themselves can really prove therapeutic in a number of contexts. But for now, what's achievable? What are the criteria to understand what's achievable and uh, which disease uh, can really be amenable in a feasible fashion for, with the technologies that we have now? Oh, well, uh, well, this is a very, very difficult uh, question. <laughs> and uh, we can talk, uh, let's say, hours and hours uh, uh, about that. So, well, there is uh, something that is feasible now, something uh, that will be feasible in a um, few years, and other things that are feasible in uh, one decade, in my opinion. So let's start from the present. Okay, What we can do now is to use the CRISCAS-9 system to treat genetic disease, but also cancer uh, diseases. Well, I want to give you some, uh, some numbers, uh, Luca, just to give you, you an idea. The, number of the ongoing clinical trials uh, worldwide that use this, uh, this system for gene therapy is 26, okay? Uh, that's, a, that's a huge number, but not so big if you consider the plethora of different diseases that you can potentially target, okay? So uh, we should ask ourselves why why we have this relative small uh, number of clinical trial. Point is that it has been estimated that the cost of this, uh, this uh, therapy, uh, if I'm not wrong, there are different estimations, but the cost is uh, two million of dollars per patient. And so what this means, I think this is the real important question that tell us where we are. Okay, we are in the stage that uh, we have very powerful tool, but it's very, very expensive. And so uh, this rise also um, ethical concern because we are developing a technology that is available for all or just for rich people. What about the developing countries, which is the direction that we want to go to this uh, new science? The point is, why is it so expensive? I should say there are a lot of reasons, but the most important one, probably the most important one, at this stage, uh, you need the viral vectors to uh, um, deliver the, the CRISCAS-9 machinery, okay? Um, there are also alternatives, for example, physical means that is based most basically on electroporation, but this also applies to the ex vivo paradigm. What this means that you can harvest the cells from the patients, you edit the cells, then you reimplant the modified cells into the patients. But also in this specific case, it's not po very popular. So the use of viral vectors is the preferred one. And this is a really, really expensive. Okay. And so, um, we have, uh, uh, Yes, one tool for all care diseases, but uh, it's not affordable for the national healthcare systems. So in my opinion, the direction, it's the needed direction, the direction towards we need to go is to ask ourselves how is this possible to decrease this cost in order to make this technology available and affordable for the national healthcare system. And this brings to me to my research because Surely nanotechnology, nanomedicine could give the chance to um, decrease the cost and to expand the therapeutic application. Okay, so I should say we should invest in the use of non-viral alternatives for delivering the CRISPR-9 machinery. Okay, in my opinion, 
uh, this is, if we can, uh, let's say, uh, be successful in this strategy in the next, the increase of therapeutic application will increase exponentially. And also we should, uh, let's say, solve the problem of the um, increase the safety profile of the treatment. And this brings me to the second part of my research line, which is to make this system stimuli responsive or to activate the activity, to trigger the activity of this formulation in order to avoid the side effects. Okay. Yeah, this is insightful and clear. Thank you. So... I guess I may ask you about the second thing that you mentioned, that is, uh, what about in 10 years from now? Of course, accessibility is the number one challenge, and uh, it was a captivating explanation, and also how you introduced to us nanotechnology. You know, viruses need cells to be made, so they cost a lot of money, probably also because, uh, I mean, for, for making them, you need to have cells and keep cells in a proper bioreactor and so on. So nanotechnologies based on uh, chemical tools help the scalability so um, what do you suppose may happen in the next 10 years, as you were briefly mentioning? Uh, well, in the next 10 years, I guess we have the CRISCAS-9 system, literally can be used as a tom-tom to guide any medication to the, t- the target blocks. Okay? Just to give you one example. So 10 years ago was a very... Uh, very popular to use uh, inhibitors of epigenetic modification, blocker of epigenetic modification. So medication that block acetyltransferases activity or methyltransferases or whatever you want, the methylase, whatever you want. And this was a really popular few, yes, last decade, let's say, 10 years ago. But at that point, what the scientists realized is that it's toxic. Because, of course, if you block epigenetics modification, this is something that is related to the whole genome. And this is really toxic. It's not just related to the genes that you are interested in. Okay. And so this failed. But what I expect from, from uh, the CRISCAS-9 system that it could be a system to reduce the toxicity. Because you can really use this system to target all this medication, not to, let's say, a random loch, but a specific loch to regulate the gene expression, the specific uh, loch. Okay. So what expect in the next decade that we can modify and modulate the gene expression at any level, epigenetic level, transcription level, post-transcription level. So we can use this system to play, to modulate as we want. The, the gene expression. And you understand that this applies to any, any disease, any, any, any treatment. So that's my expectation, that we can add a tool to uh, gain control on the modulation of gene expression, which is a site-specific. Okay. How the nanomedicine com- could contribute to this? Uh, we have an extreme need of carrier that are able to bring this machinery to the precise target in the right tissue, in the disease, uh, disease itself. And if we don't have such drug delivery system, of course, any treatment will be not effective. And we can also use nanotechnology and synthetic biology to make this system stimuli responsive. And we can use different stimuli light, uh, electromagnetic field, temperature, pH, whatever you want. Also drug responsive, ions responsive, microRNA responsive. There are a lot of stimuli that you can use to switch on the activity of this system in the tissue that you want, when you want, if you want, where you want. So this is the where, if, and when integration function. Insightful, insightful. <laughs> yeah, the, the CRISPR promises are pretty high, as we were already discussing with Isto and Jan in the inaugural episode of this podcast, and I'm looking forward to discussing with you in a few years what's happening. So I guess this leads me to another very big question in the field, that is the immunogenicity of gene editors. Um, mm. How can we measure, predict, and control 
if a given gene editor and the nanoformulation that carries it uh, elicits some sort of uh, immunogenic adverse effects or reaction that may not only result uh, in a loss of uh, the desired effect but also in uh, bigger problems and at some point uh, the impossibility to repeat treatments if these immunogenic mechanisms set out at the first round of treatment, right? That's true. I'm not really an expert on this field, Luca, but as far as I know, the problem is what you explained, uh, which means that the problem is the loss of efficacy and also the reaction, immunoreaction. So as far as I know, scientists find anti-Cas9 antibodies in the human uh, serum. And so we know for sure that, that that's a, a big issue that we can we can solve. Uh, the good news that we can um, use the knowledge that they, we acquired in the field of humanized antibodies, and we can use this uh, this knowledge. Uh, we can take advantage of this knowledge for also in this field in the genome editing field. So, as far as I know, there are um, some techniques for uh, masking epitope, immunogenic epitope. There is also the opportunity to select a variant. I told you before that there is this opt new variant. For example, you can use non-pathogenic bacteria to select this, this variant. This could be another, another option, as far as I know. The, the last, let's say, uh, is not the best, but also another option is uh, to use immunomodulators uh, uh, when you co-administer this uh, medication. Well, I really, I don't want to go in depth. It's not really my field. But for sure, uh, Luca, I know that uh, there is a lot of knowledge already acquired in the field of gene therapy uh, and also uh, monoclonal humanized antibodies that we can reuse. You take, we can take advantage of this knowledge to provide a new solution also in this field. Mm -hmm. This leads us back to the idea of merging different fields to gain knowledge. Absolutely. I guess my next question would be, what technologies would you love to exist out there to speed up and make better in some sense the process of developing a gene editor? What will be, for instance, the role of AI-based protein design and optimization and of metagenomics-derived tools? And by metagenomics here, I mean the discovery of uh, tools, in this case proteins or ribonucleoproteins, such as the CRISPR-Cas systems from uh, um, microorganisms that are rich in these tools for most disparate functions, such as for now, people have found some tools for um, methane metabolism that may turn useful, but, but now the founder of CRISPR field is in this study and, I mean, results to discover in metagenomics. So people, as you've already mentioned uh, a few times in this episode, are now bringing to DNA several different uh, enzymes, ranging from epigenetic modificators to co-activators of transcription and so on. So I guess another question that I have for you, and I know it's a lot of questions together, is what enzymatic function would you dream to bring to DNA, something that hasn't already happened and why? So to sum up, my questions here were, if there is some technology that you'd love to exist out there to speed up and make better the process of developing and um, making a new gene editor, uh, what do you think about AI and metagenomics derived tools? And third, what enzymatic function would you love to bring to DNA and why? Well, that's uh, our one million of questions in one. <laughs> I really believe that it is strategic for the field to use a synthetic biology approach. And artificial intelligence uh, will be crucial for the selection of new variants and to predict the behavior of the new variants. I mean, it's something that you can do also without uh, um, artificial intelligence, the, the selection, but you understand that time scale of, of this process is uh, decades and we don't have any time because you see every six months there is a new paper that shows you another possibility, so we don't have such a time. Uh, every month is uh, uh, a time for a new discovery and so in my opinion, uh, artificial intelligence could help us to predict the, the behavior of new, new, new variants. 
and we can uh, let's say use this to understand which is the best synthetic biology approach for um, generating this, this new diet. Just to give you a practical example, you can create new variants which are high fidelity or they can recognize different pump sites and so you can expand, let's say, your tools of uh, nucleases, okay? And for example, you can create variants, for example, you can split The name is a split Cas9. You can split the N terminal and the uh, C terminal, okay? And you can superimpose that there are the reconstitution of the full length Cas9 under specific conditions, okay? So it's really interesting, in my opinion, to use uh, artificial intelligence to predict under which condition you can have the reconstitution of the full length. Because you understand that this also uh, recall the concept of the end logic gate. Because if you can have this reconstitution of the full length activity just in specific situation, this means again that we have a molecular schism which is not active, but act activate under specific condition. So in my opinion, there is a lot to do to select new variants that have this uh, superior behavior that you can control into the target cells. So this is very interesting and stimulating field, in my opinion. And we will, I expect that uh, we'll uh, um, investigate this in depth in the next, uh, in the next years. Awesome. So I guess it's time to discuss a few concepts of nanomedicine more in depth. You've already introduced us to several of them, including the idea of making nanomedicine programmable and Q-responsive. And by Q-responsive here, I mean uh, um, really making nanoparticles that can deliver their cargoes uh, by responding to specific stimuli of several different uh, uh, types, as Vittoria mentioned, such as metabolites or enzymatic activities, pH, redox state, temperature, light, and so on. Up to the given sequences of uh, mRNAs that she was mentioning or other RNAs and DNAs to unlock cargoes such as DNA origami. So the full spectrum of possibilities is as big as the one uh, of engineering CRISPR and Cas derived systems, so to make novel tools probably. And by combining the two of them, probably we will find incredible tools for different uh, um, contexts, different pathological contexts. Of course, each of them will be more suitable for a given. Uh, um, area and uh, each of them will be less suitable from for another area so clinical applications will be initially at least targeted to where we really believe that this can work and I'd be happy to explore with you Vittoria now the, uh, a number of current nanomedical tools that are being explored in clinical trials and uh, preclinical mouse models and uh, for each of them I'd be happy if you could briefly mention to us uh, the main advantages uh, and uh, if there is uh, either a clinical application that you are aware of uh, or uh, uh, preclinical evidence that uh, could lead to clinical trials uh, in the uh, foreseeable future. And also, in general, if you can mention a few trends that you see for this technology, it's a technology that we really have to keep an eye on. So maybe we should start from viral-like nanoparticles. And uh, you've already mentioned uh, adenosated viruses, uh, and uh, the difficulties are related to making these technologies accessible as they cost a lot of money. Uh, there's also a trial, a clinical trial going on here that I've learned more by reading a review from you and uh, your colleagues. So I'd be happy if you could discuss uh, also this clinical trial uh, to introduce the idea of viral-like nanoparticles. Okay. Well, yes, probably it's, um, it's better to start um, from clinical trials. Uh, when I tell you that uh, nanomedicine could uh, really help the field, it's not just my opinion, it's a matter of fact. Um, before, the large majority of ongoing uh, clinical trials are based on the ex vivo paradigm. Okay, what this means? That you are uh, treating, editing the cells from the outside and then reimplanting uh, the cells inside. If you um, 
thing to add application. Another application, for example, is the treatment of the eyes. Uh, and the treatment consists in the subretinal injection of uh, adenos associated uh, viral uh, vectors. Okay? But you understand that this is not a real in vivo. It's, a, let's say, a local treatment. As far as I know, there is just uh, one case of real in vivo application, uh, which is based on the use of a nanoformulation. This is a lipid nanoformulation that was uh, designed to treat transtiterine amyloidosis. So, um, just a few words about this uh, pathology, Luca. So, transtiterin is the protein that when it's uh, mutated, is not able to tetamerize, but is uh, misfolded. And so, it's deposited in the cardiac tissue in the form of amyloid fibrils. And so, this causes cardiac failure, and so the half-life expectancy of these patients is more or less five years. So what the scientists did is to design this uh, this uh, nanoformulation, the CRISCAS9, to perform the knockout of transtiterin, mutated transtiterin. But the real the novelty of this approach is that uh, um, by injecting this uh, this lipid nanoformulation, what happens is one mechanism is that is called opsonization. So after injection, the nanoparticles are coated by opsonin and more specifically by ApoE. Okay. So ApoE protein has specific receptor uh, that are enriched in, onto the surface of hepatocytes. So this means that you are injecting systemically this nanoformulation, but it accumulates just in the hepatocytes which is the site of production of transtiterin protein. What we are doing is to use this nanoformulation and so nanotechnology to make an in vivo treatment a local treatment. And this increases the safety profile of the treatment because we are focusing, we are targeting our uh, CRISCAS-9 machinery just into the um, hepatocytes, so just in the target, in the target dish. So this is the big potential of a nanomedicine, to target treatment. This is just one opportunity. You mentioned DNA origami. Uh, by using aptamers concept, you can, let's say, open this cage to release their content, in this case, the CRISCAS-9 machinery. One really nice application is to use microRNA as a ligand uh, to bind to the DNA cage and to trigger the opening of the cage. Why this is interesting? Because some cancer cells have an overexpression of specific microRNA. So the idea is that you can inject this uh, DNA origami that uh, are carrier of the CRISCAS-9 machinery. And when these uh, uh, DNA cages are internalized by these cancer cells overexpressing uh, uh, macroRNA, the cage open and release the uh, CRISCAS-9 machinery. And of course, this is a stimuli-responsive nanoplatform. One very interesting is the exosome vesicles. Okay. Why it's really interesting because you can create this exosome vesicle by using as a starting material some specific cell type, also patients derived cell type. So you can harvest these cells from the patients, so you can dissociate the cells in order to um, recover the phospholipids, and you can use this as starting material to build your exosome vesicles. There is a sort of trophism. So they, by doing this, you have vesicles that retain a memory from that kind of cells. And so by doing this, you are you can target your medication to that specific cell type that are in the memory of the, these exosome vesicles. This is also another interesting application. Uh, one the most interesting to me is the um, use of the golden nanoparticles because these are the subject of the iGene project. And why it's really interesting to me? Because, um, uh, well, we... Um, make some uh, preliminary experiments with the use of golden nanoparticles and we really found very interesting results. We understood 
that these gold nanoparticles are able to work as a carrier of the CRISPR-Cas9 system into the cells. And so when the ribonucleoprotein is functionalized to the gold nanoparticles, they are spontaneously able to cross the cell membrane, also the nuclear membrane, and to deliver the cargo into the nuclei. And another interesting future is that they are plasma nanoparticles. So you can irradiate them with a light and you can activate, you can activate the behavior as of these nanoparticles as a nano eaters. And we want to use this behavior to induce locally in a specific point in the genome, the target cells, a local DNA melting. Okay. Why this is important? We are using this approach, Luca, to provide a new medication for treating uh, melanoma. Our idea by using this approach is to, uh, to target the repetitive loci into the DNA in order literally to means the uh, DNA of human melanoma cells. Okay. Um, we want to kill these cells. Melanoma disease, one problem is the multi-drug resistance. And there is also the problem that okay, because of this multi-drug resistance, they can escape. Okay, They can generate resistant clones. With our approach, if we target the repetitive loci, DNA loci, uh, what we can do is to totally destroy these cells. The idea is to create this light responsible nanoformulation in order to totally destroy this skin lesion by applying this as a nanoformulation by topical application onto the, the lesion site. So this is our, our idea more or less. Okay, so I guess now it's time for my more speculative questions. I have two questions. So my first one would be about mitochondrial disease. As uh, many of you may know, mitochondria, well, let's say evolutionarily, very, very far away in time come from bacteria. So let's say that, that they preserve their own very small DNA. So mitochondrial disease can arise sometimes uh, due to issues in the nuclear DNA, but sometimes also due to issues uh, in the mitochondrial DNA itself. And uh, this raises the possibility of performing mitochondrial gene editing, and this is something that has already happened. I guess two years ago, a beautiful paper by the group of David Liu, who was also the group that in invented the idea of base editing and at least prompted this idea to a neat uh, optimization. Uh, they also uh, created this first base editor for mitochondria. So I guess that uh, making gene editing happen uh, for mitochondrial disease uh, will also um, open uh, a few more challenges. What are the potential hurdles in delivery and editing for mitochondria and how are current strategies uh, working for these and uh, their limitations? What do you envision in this field? As far as I know, one big problem is that relating to the um, mitochondrial genome, we have many copies. Okay, and in order to be therapeutic efficacy, you should target a certain number of these copies. Should say 20% at least, 30% at least. So the problem in the field is uh, the, the delivery of this uh, machinery inside the mitochondria. I think that there is a, a, a big potential um, in the field of nanomedicine to solve this. Okay, for example, when um, we performed experiments in the framework of iGene project, what we found is that uh, gold nanoparticles are really uh, very useful in localizing uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 machinery into the mitochondria. We performed some transmission electron microscopy and uh, we found that uh, a big, huge number of nanoparticles are localized in, in the mitochondria. We really don't know why and which is the mechanism, but they, they can cross the mitochondria membrane. And so, of course, in my opinion, they can provide uh, open a new, provide new solution and really uh, give new opportunity to use uh, all the tools that we have, base editor, prime editor, base editor, whatever you, you described also to the mitochondrial diseases. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So, I guess now my very broad, open question uh, that I typically ask to my speakers is, can you tell us about uh, what you envision in the world, in this case of CRISPR and RNA therapeutics in the next 10 years? And uh, specifically, I'd be happy to know, will it be fragmented into more and more startups? And uh, if this is the case, uh, what will be their relationship with one another? And uh, you, you've already mentioned a lot about how regulations and accessibility are a big part in this uh, field. I mean, the technologies are there and optimization will make incredible tools, but we have to make sure that they are scalable and accessible and lots of things that do not concern the scientific findings themselves. How do you see the regulatory landscape to, to introduce generators to the clinic from the perspective of someone uh, uh, who lives in Europe, uh, as we've already discussed a bit of is uh, for people living in the US? Do you think this is something uh, that is already happening in some parts of the world or will happen in the foreseeable future? So to sum up, I think I've asked you a lot of questions in one. I'd be happy to know about your view for the CRISPR field in the next 10 years with details uh, also on the regulatory and the startup uh, picture and not only on the science of it. Yes, the point in my opinion is uh, try to make this technology accessible to the population. Okay, so for sure we know that we have these nuclease and that we can use them uh, in any situation to modulate the gene expression. For sure we have a number which is limited for now of clinical application but in let's say five years these numbers will exponentially increase the point is the cost as i told you before it's millions of dollars per patient so this means that we are going in the direction of insurance systems that can cover this this cost technology not available for all and this is uh, an ethical concern if you have a technology just for rich people is never a good uh, technology so my dream is uh, to decrease this cost from two millions of dollars to one thousand of dollars how this is possible this is possible in my opinion with the um, non-viral vectors just to give you an idea gold nanoparticles So the, the raw cost of our gold nanoparticles just to have the quantity for treating one patient is one euro. So you understand if you, if your raw cost is one euro, you can add the cost of the uh, ribonucleoprotein or to produce this in a clear room, to produce this under controlled condition. It will be thousands of euros, not millions of euros. Okay. And so that should be my dreams. From the biological point of view, we have the tools. Now we should use also uh, other field, in engineer-like field, try to make these tools economically sustainable. That's, uh, that's the point, to have function of the therapeutic application. But this will be possible if these therapeutics are uh, sustainable, economically speaking. Also in developing countries, There is this, uh, let's say, it's mandatory, in my, in my opinion, to give the priority of those uh, technological solutions that can be also used in developing countries. So this should be that direction. To have one all-cure, one tool that is uh, the all-cure disease for all the people worldwide. So that's my dream. Awesome. Um, I guess you gave us a very detailed and inspiring picture about why gene editing, mating, programmable nanomedicine can really be the start of a trustworthy friendship. So thank you so much, Victoria, for spending some time with us today discussing uh, all about nanomedicine and gene editing. I guess there's much more to discover about these topics and we'll make sure to post the links in the description. So thank you again, Victoria. It's been a great conversation. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Luca. You've just listened to A Biotech Futurist, a podcast by Luca Fusarbassini. This is the first series and a new episode is out every Monday. Please consider subscribing and rating the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Instagram or your top podcasting platform. And if you liked this episode, consider sharing it with your friends, as the growth of new podcasts relies on word of mouth. If you have any suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram or Gmail. 
at biotechfuturistpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the full AI-generated transcript of this episode on my website, lukafuzerabasin.com. I'll also post the links to the main papers referenced in this episode, which you can find here in the description too. Thanks for listening to A Biotech Futurist. I am looking forward to talking with you in a week.